Hold on, I'm still hooking up. I'm still hooking up. Hold on. It's coming. All right. All right, you guys, hit that share button. I am getting Mr. David Reese inside of this chat so we can get started. Oh, my sister's in here. Hey, Violet, how you doing? It was so nice to meet you. It was so nice to meet you. All right. Um, I got my people on Facebook. Hold on. Let me get everybody else in here. Violet, Violet, hold on, Violet. You, you, I don't understand. I'm going to give you permission to speak because I got to ask you some questions. This is interesting. Violet, hold we, before I even start the show, Violet, you got to turn your, unmute your mic. Oh, maybe she can't because I'm about to bust you out. No, I by me. Because you know, Violet, you're supposed to be listening to Paul Washer right now. And I'm trying to figure out why you ain't listening to Paul Washer right now. It don't make no sense to me how that happened. Because uh, I'm going to tell you guys, I'm still waiting for David Reese to get in here. But guys, go ahead. I want to make sure I can, everybody can, oh, actually get my tablet so I can check and see. I want to make sure everybody can hear me on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. We're on video on the X spaces. I'm even on my locals. I got to see my local stuff. Is it working? I'm checking. Oh, David Reese is here. All right. Hold on. Make sure he has spe invite to speak. Mr. Reese is getting invited to speak. I'm looking to make sure that we're running properly on locals. Locals is pretty awesome. If you're not on locals, you should be. It is amazing. All right. Mr. Reese is here. Got him locked in. All right, guys. So everybody in here so far, let's let's help. Get this out. Hit the share button. I want to get you guys involved in the conversation as early as possible to talk to brilliant man, Pastor David Reese. Um, uh, I we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but let me just let me just tell you. Hit the share button. Get everybody in here. Let them know that we're doing this. The only way you can talk when I stream is if you shared the show. If you haven't shared the show. I don't let you talk. It's that easy. This is not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. And I am the dictator. All right. YouTube can hear. We are here. Good. I'm glad that you guys can hear. You guys on you, Grant, you, you better hit that share button. Share it. Like it. Do something. The fact that you guys are actually talking on it is really, really good. So I'm glad you guys can hear. All right. More people sharing. More people sharing. Okay. Let me set this up for everybody. I literally just ran out from getting my last shot at the G3 conference, and boy, I don't feel good about myself. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in election. I don't believe, I don't, hey, what's up, Mason? I don't believe that you can lose your salvation, well, probably until today. Uh, so the last shot that I got was Pastor Paul Washer walking up into the pulpit and getting ready to preach. And I left right after that. And I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. I don't think you can leave 
a sermon of Pastor Paul Washer and maintain the right to be a Christian. I think that's pretty much sacrilege, probably blaspheming in one way or another. I think I think I'm in trouble. I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. I don't know if my baptism counts. I left, and not just me. I think Violet. I gave you right just me, but I think Violet left too because Violet is actually at this conference here as well. Violet was there. She. She might have left out why Paul Watcher was preaching to. I don't think she's a Christian anymore. I don't think you can do it. It's not possible. So I got I owe you guys an apology. Oh, you guys a major apology. Um, come on, guys, hit that share button. I will be right back sharing now. Thank you, Violet. Thank you very much for hitting. You know what? You might not have lost your salvation as much as I thought. You know how to hit the share button. May the Lord God bless you real good and may your tribe increase. Oh, I got to tell you guys. So I, I met Violet. We were on um, X spaces. She comes in every now and then. And she brought my wife a lovely gift. And I haven't even opened it yet because I'm going to save it for my wife. I thought that was the most amazing thing to say, babe, at this conference, somebody was thinking about you. And I just want you to have this thing. So Violet, thank you so much for bringing my wife a gift. Very kind of you. So if you haven't been paying attention, there's a whole new thing going on that I'm doing. I have started a, a daily show along with, it's not really a show. It's more like a live stream. I want to be more interactive with you guys. And so I'm traveling right now. If you can't see this, I'm in a hotel room, not where I'm normally at in the studio. But I started a new thing, Knox Unleashed, where I'm going to be doing daily live streams, not just shows. I want to talk with you guys. I want to crowdsource content. And so right now I'm at the G3 conference and this is not really the, the beginning of it. This is just me practicing, I guess you could say. This is me engaging. And the goal is to have a show every night where we live stream and we talk because I got tired of bad content. I got tired of horrible things. I wanted Christian content. I wanted godly content. I wanted something that would at least be better than sharing Dylan Mulvaney's stuff. And so came up with a concept for five days. We have... Um, Marvelous Mondays, where we talk about the undoing of the wicked. We have T3, which is tech, theonomy, Tuesdays. I always get tripped up with that. TTT. Uh, tech, theonomy, Tuesdays, where we, we don't fear tech. We serve the God of the world who has placed treasures in the world for us to figure out the metaphysical realities of how we use them to the glory of God. What is this thing? What is this for? And how do we use it to the glory of God? So that's T3, tech, theonomy, Tuesdays. Okay. And Wednesdays is um, work Wednesdays. Oh, man, we get work so wrong. Work is not a curse. Work is a blessing. Work is a blessing because you are made in the image of God to be like him. God worked. And so we just don't work with horrible attitudes, not trying to make something good and beautiful. We work because God has already worked. And so our work is all discovery. Ooh. Ooh, what has God made? What has he done? How do I make it better and serve people with this thing and use it to the glory of God? So Wednesdays is to change our idea about work and to get us to the right attitude, how we should be engaging when we think about our jobs, our bosses, and the people that we serve with the work that we do. Thursdays. I miss Thursdays. So this is my apology. I owe you guys an apology because I miss yesterday. Again, that we haven't started really yet. Yesterday was supposed to be Thread Inception Thursdays. 
where I go through Twitter threads, you go through your Twitter threads, and we just talk back and forth about those Twitter threads. Now, listen, you guys aren't looking like you want to talk very much. So go ahead and request to talk. I'm going to get you guys in here so you guys can be lined up, ready to ask questions to Pastor David Reese when he comes on. So then Fridays, which is today, is Family Fridays. One of the things, one of the reasons why you have Family Fridays is because Pastor David Reese said something. I have great conversations with this guy. I call him and I can talk to him for hours. He's me and me, him and Jason Farley. I mean, love these guys. They've been such a blessing to me. And one of the things that Pastor Reese said is that we underestimate the importance of the family. And this was right after a conversation that we had, had talking about civic covenanting over against Christian nationalism. And I thought about what he said, and I'm like, you are absolutely right. When is the last time you found mega conferences really dealing with the theology of the family, the order and structure of the family, the, the importance of the family? And the reason why we decided to, um, the reason why I think this conversation was fresh in our head when he brought it up was because we were talking about civic covenanting. And when he was breaking down civic covenanting, he started right from the beginning of covenants. And I realized, oh, my goodness, we don't have an understanding of how the covenant works. We don't understand that the whole world is in covenant. We don't understand that its covenants are inescapable. And so we're not going to have a great conversation about nationalism. We're not going to have a great conversation about laws. We're not going to have a great conversation about hierarchy. We are not mature enough in a lot of ways to have the conversation on Christian nationalism or Christian covenanting, civic covenanting, until we understand the beginning, the process of what it means to be in covenant and the original intent that God had made man for. So I'm like, oh, we have to do this. So Pastor Reese was last time on the stream. You can go find all the old streams that are gone from X. You can find those on the Fight Left Feast pub app. Download the app and you'll find Knox Unleashed and it's all there. You can listen to Pastor Reese's last conversation we had on civic covenant. It was fantastic. Civic covenanting. It was fantastic. It was really fantastic. So I really encourage you all to go listen to that as we engage in the the, the preface to even talking about civic covenant. I don't. I don't want to take it all. I don't want. Oh, thank you for the thumbs up, DJ. I appreciate that, DJ Payne in the house, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, DJ. So, guys, go ahead and get lined up. If you want to ask questions, you want to engage a topic, I'm going to have you on. I want to talk with you. I don't want you guys to talk to Reese. Um, um, I want to talk to Reese, and I want you guys to have a, a, a open source dialogue on this topic. So, Pastor David Reese, um, you've been listening. You can go ahead and unmute your mic, brother, and I'm going to bring you all the way into the conversation now. I'm going to shut up before I say too much and take all of your smoke. But you're a bright man. You have lots of smoke. So, uh, um, can you hear? Can you hear me all right? Uh, yeah, I can hear you fine. I want to hear you more. Great. Okay. Great. Uh, all right. So, brother, thanks for the introduction. Uh, yes. My, you, you were talking about the history of covenants, and you were talking about the fact that if we're going to get anywhere, we need to have a good understanding of the covenant structure, understanding the covenant history. We need to understand how the institutions relate and how to govern ourselves. Right. So my understanding is today we'll be focusing in on, on the individual and the family, um, but we need to 
think is always about the origins of things and the design that God has given. So uh, just to, as always, we need to go back to the garden. And, and when we go back to the garden, we think about the fact that God created man. He creates man in a covenant. And in that covenant, the initial covenant is a covenant of works, which requires perfect obedience. And that covenant obviously also comes with dominion. And so the government of self and the government of property and the institution of marriage and the institution of children being under the authority of parents is given inside of the giving of the marriage covenant. So initially we have in the institution of marriage, God tells us the process by which there is a limit on the authority of households. And what he does is he says, a man shall leave his father and mother. It's an act of secession out of a household and shall be joined or shall cleave to his wife. And so there's a union that's formed, a covenantal union, and the two shall be one flesh. And that is a reality of a shared ownership, a shared possession. Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians for us, that the husband has authority over the wife's body, the wife has authority over the, the husband's body. There are rights, there are claims, there are covenants. That these, these co- this covenant has conditions and obligations inside of it. But when we have that initial covenant, that's the covenant where the individual in terms of his relationship with God and the obligation to obey God is established. And there's also the marriage covenant and the household. And we have the free exchange of property so that servant relationships can also exist in terms of employment are created inside of that. Now with the fall, obviously there is sin coming into that picture and the gospel is given in Genesis chapter three, and we have the formation of the church in terms of it having a distinctive presence because we're given animal sacrifice as a sacrament there to distinguish the household and the church. And what we have is in the giving of the gospel, a way to deal with sin. And we deal with the fact that no longer is man uh, interacting with God on the basis of perfect obedience. But now it's on the basis of the forgiveness obtained by Christ. And it's also on the basis of the obedience of Christ. And so that obviously is looking forward because it hasn't yet been accomplished by Christ, but it's prophesied there. Of the household and of the individual in terms of self-government, there's a lot more to go into in terms of thinking about the nature of reality and how that all functions out. But that's, that's the origin point. And I think it's important that we realize the book of Genesis is far more important than we often think. We know it's an important story. We think about creation, but the origin of all of the covenant institutions can be found in Genesis. And by the time we get to Genesis four, we've already got the separation of the world from the church. And that's, we're not focusing on the church today, but you get that very quickly. And so we get that, those covenant institutions, by the time we get to Genesis nine, we've got the state. And so those institutions, the individual, the household, the church, and the state, those are the four forms of government established by covenant by God so that these are not simply voluntary associations, but rather they are formal covenantal institutions where a duty relationship exists, where we cannot escape that. As an individual, you are in covenant with God. The question is, are you merely under the covenant of works or are you in the covenant of grace?
with people inside of families, you are born into a family and you cannot escape the idea of covenantal relationship there. People are born into the church or they're born outside of it. And that's obviously something Baptists will disagree with, but there is an obvious Old Testament uh, clarity about that in terms of circumcision. And then there is being born into nations. We were born into states, civil societies. And those four covenant institutions are not merely voluntary institutions. They are covenantal. They are authoritative. They are designed by God. Um, they are formed by oath with life or death consequences. They are sovereignly defined. And there's an administrative methodology that God has given to us in his word. Okay. That's good. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. So keep going. Work that out now. Let's work out. You have, man, I don't know where to start. There's so much I want to go into because I want to talk about where do you see? Oh, I feel like a squirrel. Um, <laughs> do you want me to go into the individual first? Well, yeah, because when you said the church, I'm like, where do you see the church established at? I'm just curious. Yeah, so, sure, I know we're not here so, to talk about it. I just, I'm like, hmm, interesting. I never thought about that one. Sure. So the church is instituted as a distinctive entity in terms of a, a, a body where the covenant of grace is administered, right? So you have the city of God is initiated uh, in the very formation of Adam. So when, when God calls Adam and Eve from their hiding, tells them about the curse, um, and, and then gives to them the gospel by telling them about the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, um, when, we have, when we have that initiated, uh, we're then immediately afterwards, we see the giving of animal skins to cover the nakedness of Adam and uh, Eve, got it. Okay. which is, is animal sacrifice. And so, so, you know, creation had stopped. He stopped making anything on the at the end of the sixth day. So these are animals that we're they're a part of providence. He's taking things that already are there and altering them. And so he is taking these animals and removing their skin. And I don't know about you, but generally when I remove the skins off of animals, they're dead, <laughs> and or they die quickly. Right. And so so God is killing animals there, and the skins are representing the, the righteousness of Christ. And so that idea of animal sacrifice is instituted there. That's the, that's the, that's the initiating of a, of a sacrament of the covenant of grace. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Let's, can we move into, I, I don't want to get distracted on that. So um, let's move into right into the family. So let's work through the offices of men, women, and the government that surrounds it. So, when we think about a man, just an individual, first we realize God gave dominion to men and he gave that dominion to individual men. So there's a general dominion of man over everything that is under man. What we have is God being excluded and the angels are excluded and other human beings are excluded from that. The dominion exists over animals, over plants, over land, over the heavens themselves and the the land and the waters, right? So we have all that. That is a, an authority over those things to use them 
So there's a government of the self in terms of the inward self, and there's a government of the outward self and the call to cultivate and to preserve. There's work and keep, the, the positive nurture, building, cultivating, creating, and the negative preservation, maintaining, defending, guarding. So working and keeping. So that self-government, we also see that applied to the inward man in Genesis 4, where you have the city of man separating out from the city of God in terms of, you know, Cain being pushed out, uh, and he's you know, disinherited, but he's also he's also pushed out of the of the church, and he becomes the city of man separate. And so he is told that you know, sin is crouching at the door, but you need to go over it. So there's this dominion being applied to the inward man. That was true before the fall, but with the fall and concupiscence of the inward desire of sin, we have this, this, you know, the corruption of nature that makes that we have more to battle with. And mm. so the self, self-government is applied not only to the body and to governing your actions and time. We have to redeem the time, be efficient. We do all the economic planning and all that kind of stuff. We have to deal with that. But we also have to deal with simply governing our own thoughts and rightly ordering those. And so we think about the image of God, and it's important to understand the inward because as a man thinks, so is he. And out of the heart come words and actions. There's the overflow of the heart. And so the government of the mind is the principal thing. And, you know, when we told what's the goal of life, the goal of life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, which happens by knowing him and then showing the knowledge of him. And so we get wisdom. He who boasts, let him boast in this, that he knows and understands me, God. Um, this idea that we are to glory in the knowledge of God, that wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. So the, the knowledge of God is the thing by which we can govern ourselves. Uh, you, if you, you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It sets you free from bondage to sin. So the knowledge of the truth gives power to govern self. And the more truth you know, the more you will be able to govern yourself, assuming you have the principal truths of the authority of God's word, the gospel, and the narrow sense of the saving message of Jesus Christ. And then we more and more meditate on the law and all the details and the whole counsel of God. And that gives us more and more power. And so self-government is about knowing God. And as we grow in the knowledge of God, what we see is we have a definition of man and a structure to inwardness of man that that is revealed. And the image of God is revealed as being knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. And so we see that we're told in the New Testament that we should be renewed after the image of Christ in knowledge and holiness and in righteousness. We find those things, which means that those are telling us about what's being renewed. And so that renewal is those things. And those are all a part of being a rational creature. And so thinking rationally, thinking well, having logical thought where you have good and necessary conclusions in arguments, where you test premises to see are these a part of what the Word of God actually says. As opposed to things I've made up, whether they're coming from my heart or from the traditions of men or the doctrines of demons. So this testing of doctrine, we're supposed to test doctrine, test the spirits, search the scriptures to see if these things are so. That's the key part of self-government. So you grow in knowledge, holiness, and righteousness so that you act as a rational creature and you can give your rational worship, your rational service to God, as it was told in Romans 12. Now, this is a manifestation our dominion, and we are given three offices to fulfill. And these three offices we're told to fulfill are the office of prophet, priest, and king. Mm. 
and, and profits. No, profits. David, hold on. I want to interrupt you real quick. I, I don't want that to slip by. That's a really good point. So you're saying that as a person who is uh, to take dominion, dominion is taken in this in the ideas fulfillment as a prophet, priest, and king is office, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. So okay. we exercise dominion. Dominion is the work of adding to and the work of preserving or defending. And that manifests itself in these three offices. So the prophet is called the work and keep. The priest is called the work and keep. And so is the king. So what does that mean? That means as prophets, we need to seek to gain wisdom. That's the positive and we need to seek to pluck out and tear down all of the false doctrines, all of the false beliefs, and take every thought captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just prophet. That's just prophet. That's just a prophet. That's just a prophet. Dude, say that again. I don't want that. I'm a charismatic David. I'm a charismatic. So at, at heart, but not but not really. Right. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> at least my Presbyterian friend, my Puritan friend, say, "Whoa, what is going on?" <laughs> uh, so, so when you make a good point, I'll tell you again, so people can really get it. I'm just, I'm, I'm just being your charismatic preacher. I'm, I'm your TDJ. I'm the, I'm the, in, I'm the David Reese charismatic voice in your head. How about that? Well, I'll, I'll roll with it. We'll do this. We'll do this. So, <laughs> Say that again, because I don't want that to be missed about the, the role of a prophet. So a prophet exercises dominion by doing the positive work of seeking wisdom, gaining wisdom, the, the constructing its inward. Right? The word educate and edify are based upon the idea of building an edifice. And so this idea of the building of the knowledge of the system of truth in your mind, there is this constructive work of learning that's occurring. Now that work is ultimately done by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this prophetic work is this, is this process of growing in the knowledge of the truth, and that's the positive constructive piece. Mm. The negative element, the guarding, the, the preserving element, the keeping, is the tearing out, the rooting up of false doctrine, of unbelief, and and to cause it so that we don't have these falses anymore. So it's like the, going around and tearing down the conceptual idols. Like you might as you might want to see idols torn down physically, but it's important as a prophet to also tear down idols that are in your heart, which isn't always just like some feeling or affection or whatever. It's also this idea of of falsehoods that you believe about God. Mm. You know what? Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Because as, you, as you're talking about this, as you're talking about this, it, it's really hard to get over that. It's hard to un, uh, see and examine and tear down idols out there that you haven't torn down in your own mind and in your own heart first. Right. And, and, and the false gods yeah. that we worship the false gods that we worship will, will end up being made by our fingers. Right? We will really enact to those false gods if we don't tear them down in our heart. Oh, I'm the amen court. I'm going to be all over the nerves. So sorry. We actually have to idols. We teach the pagans. Let me make this idol and worship it real well because we haven't dealt with our own idols, so we end up manifesting them out in our own fingertips. That is so good. All right. 
I'm going to try to keep myself. But I got that ready for you. All right, go ahead. You next. Keep going. So when we, when we continue and we think about prophetic work as it leaves, it turns into the obligation of, of communicating truth and rebuking falsehood. And so we, we deconstruct by using logic in a negative way to show the internal incoherence of other views. And we positively construct the truth by teaching what the Word of God teaches. And we show here are the express statements of what God has revealed, and here are the necessary inferences. Here's the, here's the things that you can prove mm-hmm. by good and necessary inference. And so that's the positive, constructive work of the prophet. And then there's that tearing down, the deconstructing, the other things are incoherent. So as we move on to... Hold on, to, hold on. David, can, what, can you give an example of that? Uh, point to a prophet and say, like this? So one of the things that we that we see happening um, with Jesus as you know, the ultimate prophet yeah. is he gives us an example of proving positively the doctrine of the resurrection uh, out of the first uh, five books of the Bible, but pulling together the principle that God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that demonstrates that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are therefore living. And he puts that forward against the Sadducees as a positive construction. And in his negative place, he says, you guys don't understand this because you don't understand the word of God or the power of God. And so he's saying, here's how I know, you know here's where you're contradicting yourselves. You claim to believe the first five books of the Bible, but the first five books of the Bible demonstrate these things. And so he just, by putting those side by side, he's showing you're incoherent with your own position. I also believe the first five books of the Bible, and they by themselves prove the doctrine of the resurrection. And so those are, that's one example. Another one is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 goes through a, a process of deconstructing those who deny the resurrection by showing how if they claim to believe in Christ, then they also have to accept the doctrine of the resurrection. So he's saying you can't claim to be a Christian and deny the resurrection. And so he goes through this series of arguments there, and it's, it's a multi, he uses multiple types of, of, of argument structure. Uh, the basic thing is to take the premise of your opponent and to show how it leads to a contradiction inside of their own system. He does that in 1 Corinthians 15. But then he also connects those arguments over and over. And so when you connect arguments and use the conclusion of a prior argument as a premise of the next step. That's called a serites. So he uses syllogisms, which are using two premises coming to a conclusion, and he uses the conclusion and takes it down into the next syllogism, and that's called a serites. So Paul massively does this in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus does it when he's arguing against the Sadducees, and so those are two major examples. But you can look all over the scriptures and see this sort of deconstructive reasoning. Um, it can be done in more or less mocking forms, like, you know, where's your God working with Baal? You know, is he going to the bathroom and living himself? Yeah. 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 And so, so the, the, you, you see this in, in more or less mocking forms, 
in every case, there's sort of this deconstruction showing if your claims were true, then it would lead to this, it leads to this other thing. And that can be a result in history or it can be a argument internally. Those are the two tests we have for prophets. Deuteronomy tells us, you know, if a prophet speaks in a way that's contrary to what has already been revealed, they're a false prophet. Yep. Also, if a prophet prophesies an event and then it doesn't happen or it happens differently, they're a false prophet. So we have the twofold test of what did they say would happen and did it happen? And then secondly, is it coherent with what was already revealed? I was just testing to see if you had that one in the bag, and I said, yeah, I said you did. All right, let's go to the priest. Priest, men are, part of the image of God is holiness. Okay, so think about this. If rationality is the image of God, if you're rational, you inherently, you inherently are going to have thought content in your mind. You can't reason about nothing. You have to have information you're reasoning about. That's knowledge that's really sort of problem. The priest, in terms of holiness, holiness is about purpose, it's about goal, it's about how one thing relates to another. So being holy under the Lord is being devoted to the purpose of the glory of God. Instruments that were in the temple, the temple itself, priests, were set apart from other work to the particular work of glorifying God by the temple worship of the temple service. So holiness is about purpose or goal, and it relates to this idea of, of staying away from something in order to focus on a particular thing. And so priesthood relates to holiness. And so the image of God manifests itself in purpose. You cannot be rational and fail to have purposes, and you cannot have purposes without being rational. And so the goal of glorifying God, whatever thing we think is most valuable, that thing is our God. Right. And the thing that is highest in value to us uh, is the thing that we're going to pursue. Now, all of our sins are us having false beliefs that result in us you know, devaluing the true God and overvaluing other things. Those things become idols, and we take actions and speak words to dishonor the Lord out of these false beliefs in pursuit of wrong valuation. And so holiness is about proper valuation, proper affections, proper ordering of the value of things in our mind. And so if we have a holiness in our minds as priests, what we're going to do is we're going to focus upon the goal and seek to remove distractions. We're going to um, we're going to self-sacrificially give up lesser goods for the higher good. And so that means I might enjoy doing such and such, but it's going to stop me from doing a duty. And so I'm going to not do it. And I'm going to pursue my duty. Or here's the sinful way to get to something that I might enjoy, and I'm going to not do the sinful thing to get it uh, in order to focus upon doing things that are useful for pursuing the goal of the glory of God. But if I pursue something I want the wrong way, then what I'm doing is I'm becoming profane or unholy. I'm, I'm not focusing myself on the goal. And so that idea of priesthood, now the, the positive work of the priest is to set apart, is to pray for blessing on, and it is 
this self-sacrificial work, this, this sacrificing of things for the goal. Um, that's the negative element. I'm forgive me. The prayer and the focus is the positive work. Okay. The keeping work, the guarding is sacrificing. The positive work is praying for and focusing on. The, the, the negative work is sacrificing. And in our, in the new covenant era, we're not sacrificing goals, right? We are, we are sacrificing our desires. We are being crucified in the flesh. We are, um, we mm-hmm. give the sacrifice of the fruit of our lips in, in, in praise. We, we offer up our prayers. We devote our minds to thinking on God. There's a, a sacrificing of ourselves. And so that is the negative. That's the guarding. We avoid other things so that we can put on what's good. We can focus on what's good. That's really helpful. You know, it's funny. Um, as, you were, as you were talking about that, the only thing I, was, I want to ask about is, would you say that the idea of ordering things right in our head so that the things are, and I, I guess I don't, do you make this distinction between head and heart? Uh, no. Okay. So then ordering things right in our head produces right action in reality. So we don't have, I think that right now there's a lot of people who have the theology of structurally ordered right in their head, but it doesn't bleed out in their feet. Always scared of just just talking in a way that right order theology, but it just doesn't have any impact in, in reality. So here, go ahead. Sorry, that's what you're saying. Go ahead. So, so here's the deal: you either believe it or you don't. Right, and and if if somebody understands the doctrine and thinks that it's true, they believe it. We often want to add lots of other things, like head-heart distinction or, you know, well, do you believe it, but, you know, do you really trust or whatever? Right. You can have all sorts of words. I'll tell you what, if you trust Jesus, all that means is that you believe certain things are true about him. That, that, now, yeah, go ahead. That includes, for example, if I believe Jesus paid for my sins and that there's nothing else I have to do, then I trust him. I trust, I believe, that he has paid for my sins. I trust, I believe, that there's none of my works that have to be added to. Now, you can call that arresting. You can call it, you know, you can call it whatever you want. The problem is, when we take language like that and we try to make everything mean something different, it goes, do you believe? Do you trust? Do you rest? Are there all these things, they're not a bunch of different things. They're all different ways of talking about the exact same thing. Right. It's just, do you understand what the Lord has revealed? And do you think it's true? Mm. If you don't think it's true, you're not a believer. If you do think it's true, you are. And you can't believe it unless the Holy Spirit causes you to believe it. Now, there are all sorts of false beliefs that we all carry around. And that is the root of all sin. The root of all sin, the root sin of everything, the corruption of the nature is unbelief. It's believing falsehood. It's the disorder of our minds. And we are renewed by the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And that renewing work is the setting truth in the mind in the proper order, seeing it systematically. When you, when you understand a bunch of truth claims and claim to believe them and do not enact them, every time you sin, you ought to repent of that and you ought to stop and say, why am I doing this? What is the falsehood that I'm believing? What is the lie that I am believing that I am operating out of to make it so that I am doing this thing that I hate? Or if you, if you simply don't care, you might want to ask, do I even believe in God? And so if you don't care, then you need to go, okay, what is it that I do believe? Do I believe the gospel or do I believe something I've made up? And you go and compare it. So the way you know whether you believe the gospel or not is not by how many good works you're doing. The way you know whether you believe the gospel or not is whether what you believe is in the scripture. And it's going to necessarily result in good fruit. It's going to result in good fruit. It's, it's going yeah, it's in a reality, right? Right. But, yeah, but I, we have uh, to be abundantly clear that faith is not fruit. That's It's yeah. not the fruit. It's not the work. That's enough. As, all right, I, you know, we finally have a brave soul. What's wrong with y'all people in here? You can ask, ask the request. We're going to get to Kings. You're going to get to that in just a second. I want to make sure I let people come in and talk because that's this is about crowds conversation. My guy, Brian Moose from Theopolis, you have the floor. If you want to ask a question or you're engaged, I'll give you 30 seconds. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. First, uh, you guys, really, really good conversation so far. Just a couple of little things. You actually started to answer one of my questions in the last, I don't know, 60 seconds there, David. So this may be a moot point, but I was curious how you would respond. Oh, or is, what that your a, is that are. a pun? Is that a pun? <laughs> Mr. Moot, is that a pun? Oh, my goodness. What your thoughts are. Oh, I saw it coming. I wonder what your thoughts are on the the, de- the faith and the, the head belief of uh, demons. I'm curious how you would work through uh, that passage there in James 2. Um, that, that would be one question that I would ask uh, based on what you were just saying. I, I have a bunch of questions that I won't be able to have time to ask, unfortunately. But um, So the, the faith of, the, the, faith of the, the demons, touch on that if you could. And then what, what are your, what's your take on Paul's uh, statement on faith as obedience or the obedience of faith and trusting in the Lord Jesus is an obedient act, and that resting and trusting is part of our obedience. I'm curious how you would flesh those two verses out, or those two portions of Scripture. You know what? I have great answers for those, but I do not want to be rude. I'm going to let Pastor Reese go ahead and take those. Dave, go ahead. (laughs) All right, so the first thing is um, I want to talk about the second part first, which was the idea of the obedience of faith. So first of all, the obedience of faith, uh, we are required, we are commanded by the first commandment to believe everything that God has said. Yep. And, and so there is a way in which faith is a work. Right. Faith is a work in the sense that the law requires it. And, and if Adam, in the covenant of works, were to be justified by works, it would include him obeying internally and externally. So he would have the... You know, would be believing as, an, as a meritorious act. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as a meritorious act, 
believed everything that was revealed in his human nature, and and then acted also. So there's that in the covenant of works. And in the covenant of grace, faith is not a uh, not the, not a part of the meritorious basis of our justification. Mm-hmm. Christ is the alone meritorious cause of our justification. His mediatorial work. So in in justification, it is the own instrument. Think about this: in a contract, you sign a contract, but the signing of a contract is the instrument by which you accept the terms. And the contract might require you to say, I, "I hire you to build a, a house for me." I meritoriously to fulfill the contract need to hand you the money, and you meritoriously need to, need to build me a house. Us signing the contract is not a meritorious fulfillment of the terms of the contract. It's the instrument by which the contract is formed. So in faith, in justification, in the covenant of grace, sola fide is the doctrine that faith is the alone instrument of justification. And, right. and so that Christ's meritorious work is the alone meritorious basis of our justification. Right. And okay. So so that's so I would say that there's the obedience of faith in the sense of the obligation under the law. Secondly, the obedience of faith is a we're regenerated and we're made able to 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 we, we are caused to believe regeneration is us being given faith. And then we are more and more caused to grow in faith. And and so and there's a, an external obedience that is yielded out of that. And that necessarily happens, it's unavoidable. It's a part of the salvation that's given to us. So I don't go to James. I'm sorry, so, so, Mr. Motes, they following Yeah, I, you're clear on what your position is, absolutely. Okay, understood. So I get you don't agree. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> so then so then so then James James is talking about uh, the the demons believe mm-hmm. and they tremble. The word believe or faith that's used in James, when you look at James chapter 2, you have to ask yourself, is James saying that believing doctrine is insufficient for justification? I think if we say that, we have abandoned soul of Peter. And, and we have put James at odds with Paul, or we had to define, we have to interpret Paul when Paul talks about justification by faith alone, he's not talking about uh, faith as an instrument that's separate from works, but we end up with something where it's like faithfulness as the instrument of justification. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's that's the way you, you would have to interpret that. So I believe that Paul yeah, is going in a new perspective uh, area. Right. Sure. So, so I don't believe that. And, and I, I believe that what Paul is saying is that Saving faith is simply understanding and believing the revealed doctrine. And I believe that James is saying, is talking about how we judge the profession of another. So the section begins with, uh, you say you have faith. One person says they have faith. And so it is talking about a profession. So when you get to the demons, I think the point is actually that he's saying that even the demons make profession. He doesn't say stay over and over again. He, he replaces, says it has faith, says it has faith. And he goes into the idea of, of just using the word faith. But faith is in the context of the whole argument. Now, the other way that this is commonly interpreted is to understand the belief of the demons to simply be limited to the idea of monotheism. So the, the options are either James is saying belief is not enough, 
or James is saying that, that the that the demons believe some information, but not the saving information, or he's saying that the demons profess to believe, and they give the evidence of trembling too. And so I hold to that third view. It's very common to hold to the second view, and I think the third view is is not. I think it's another gospel. I think to say that it, 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 that belief is not enough is the position of Rome or or any other gospel. Understand. Thanks for explaining, brother. Thank you. Okay, so I want to recap real quick. Um, I, Brian, thank you for being bold and and unlike some of these other people in here who just listening for fun. We want to talk to y'all. What's wrong with y'all people? I thought y'all wanted to engage. You know what I'm saying? You like but I have 15 minutes to pick up dinner before I watch Goonies with my kids and my wife, and I saw you're talking about family, one of my favorite topics, and I said I'm gonna listen to my friend and. It was okay. up about it. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate you. Lord God bless your tribe and may your tribe increase. Thank you for taking <laughs> that time. Appreciate you, bro. <clears throat> so, I, Dave, you recommend, so I want to move over to King since we don't have any people in here that seem to have any titanium in their back. You know what? Listen, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe David's just doing such a great job explaining this and nobody really has any questions on it. That's fine. Maybe, maybe David is doing that. So this is, I just want to recap. We went prophet, priest, king. So we, each one of these prophet, priest, king is underneath the idea of dominion. Dominion has worked out itself. That is a set out within those three categories: prophet, priest, king. All of these categories have a positive and a negative form of what would you say taking dominion, right? Thank you. That's right. So uh, and, and the, maybe, the prophet. Yeah. This also reminds me of, as you go through the Westminster Confession of Faith, as you go through the section on the law, it has a positive and negative form of the law. It's not just positive or it's not just negative. It's actually positive things as well. It's um, inferred there from the Ten Commandments. Right. So the Westminster Standards organize the law in a positive and negative element. So the idea is whenever A is commanded, on A is forbidden. Whenever you know B is forbidden, non B is commanded. Right. So that, that the idea is that the law has positive and negative elements, and that has to do with the logical structure of language itself, and the fact that God begins with differentiation, differentiating light and darkness, all that. So you, when you say something, you're saying not something else. When you say not something, you're saying something. Mm. Right. So those those are as it's structured there. So the work is always positive and negative. The law is structured in a positive and negative way. Offices are positive and negative. So the dominion work that we have, we're called to build and we're called to guard. They're positive and negative. Now, that would, for example, the command to build is the command to not destroy the stuff we're trying to build. And that's what guarding is about. It's about preventing the destruction. And destroying things that are a danger is about allowing space the things that ought to be there. And so a king is called, when you think about the prophets are teaching correct, priests are supposed to you know, pray down blessing and focus in a positive way, and they are negatively sacrificing to preserve. And a king, sorry, that was of the priest, the king is called to provide and protect. And so this idea of the king goes and acquires, he, he provides, he, he builds things, this idea of getting stuff done. Righteousness is associated with kings. 
And so if you look at the internal structure, if thought content properly formed as knowledge, and that's the perfect thing to be built up, and if purpose or goal properly formed as holiness, and that's the priestly thing to build up internally, then choice properly formed is righteousness. And that is going to be what the kingly element is. And so kings get stuff done. They make it happen. Um, and they also are the ones who are going to kind of intercept and, and stop. There's this literal protecting, the physical guarding. And so a king is being decisive. And so when we, we see in Scripture the idea of the Ishkayil, or, or we might have the uh, anthropon uh, cosmos, the, 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 the well-ordered man, the, the man who's well-behaved, how it's normally translated, or we have this idea of the, the man of valor, Ishkayil. These are guys that are decisive. They're decisive in business. They're decisive in war. They make stuff happen. They make choices. So they make choices and they can be decisive because they are focused on the mission, the goal, the knowledge to be able to discern good from evil. So that is what makes it so that you can be decisive. Having the knowledge, having the goal, makes it so you can make choices quickly. And the law of God teaches you the right choices to make. So we want to know our theology and be good prophets. We want to know the goal we're supposed to pursue and the proper allegiances we're supposed to have and be good priests. And we want to know what the law teaches with a lawful means. And so, we should redeem the time and be constantly choosing to do good works. And in constantly choosing to do good works, we need to be knowing what good works are and what are not good works. Chapter 16 of the Westminster Convention teaches the law of God teaches us what good works are. And so it is a thoroughgoing, complete template that gives us a way to choose by principles, general principles of the word, to know what a good work is at every given time. And so it is sufficient for every area of life. And people will point out things like, well, does the law of God teach you whether I should eat vanilla ice cream? Let me, let me tell you, yes. Let me tell you why. <laughs> okay. okay. Let me tell you why. I'm here. I'm here for this. There is a sin called asceticism. Asceticism is the sin of choosing to do less enjoyable things, to do unenjoyable things, to do to give up lawful comforts and pleasures, and rather than giving thanks for them, choosing to pick the thing you like less because you think it's more holy. If your favorite ice cream flavor is vanilla and you're not sick of it because you haven't had too much of it, and your option is eat the ice cream that's vanilla or eat some other ice cream flavor, and you prefer to eat the vanilla, and assuming you're not trying to give it to somebody else to honor them, failing to eat the vanilla you're going to pick one to eat would be sin. We are called to thankfully enjoy what God has given to us. You should do the things that make it so that you enjoy it in moderation rather than being an ascetic and avoiding the thing that you enjoy most out of some sense that somehow it's more holy. So there are moral principles to apply in every choice. And if you apply those in faith, based upon the word of God, then you are doing a good work. You do it with thankfulness. You do it in faith. You do it for the glory of God. If it's not a thing that you can do lawfully, it's sin. Don't do it. 
And so whatever is not of faith is sin. If it's not done to the glory of God, it's sin. And so we have principles that we can apply everywhere. Boy, now, you, you're trying to get me to buy a whole bunch of ice cream tonight. I see right now, I'm going to feel good about myself. I got I have a lots of shirts and Hagen dazs and I'm just trying <laughs> That's to what it is. cash in. That's what it is. Uh-huh. Go ahead. I'll let you finish, and I want to bring Michael Foster in. Okay. That's, and so that idea, the king, the person who's able to make decisive choices, he can do righteousness. And so we, self, we have self-government with righteousness by the law of God, teaching us what are good works. And the question is, there's always good works to do. There's an infinite amount of good works to do. The question is a matter of order of operation. Order of operation is how you manage yourself well in terms of the use of your time. The Bible gives us instructions about the order of operation. And a head of house, the dad, his job is to order the operations of the household. And that's where his authority really comes in. He's commanding people to do stuff to well, keep it well ordered. So when we get to the household, that order of operation thing becomes a really big thing. All right. And now here we're gonna have a test here. Hey, uh, Mr. Foster, Pastor Foster, I gotta ask you: Did you did you share this space? Because there's, I have a rule on here. I have a rule. You can't talk if you ain't share. You know what I'm saying? Sharing no. is caring, bro. No, I didn't share it. You have you haven't. I haven't been on here long enough to prove that I should share it. What do you oh, mean? Well, no, no. I, I, you know what? Why don't you then? Why don't you mute your mic and you listen a little longer? I'll mute it. I'll mute it. <laughs> Hey. I just came on here to see Brian Motes about watching Goonies. I didn't. Oh, so. I, and you know what? I'm, I didn't catch that one. Did he say he's watching Goonies family? I did. I still wanted to tease him about it. I just didn't hear me watch it. It ain't what I thought it was. I thought Goonies was a good film when I was a kid. And all of a sudden, I watch it. I can't watch this with family. I would have some video. Yeah, I, I want to give you my opinion on. Um, like this in ET, but I haven't heard it yet. So, you know, yeah. you came here to be disruptive. I've got a disruptive spirit on you right now. Yeah, it's a spirit, the Antichrist spirit, whatever. Yeah. When I was in the church, we all had those. <laughs> well, I'm gonna function like a king and I'm gonna give you some negative press. How about that? Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> hey brother, I, I, no seriously, I appreciate you being on. I'm gonna give you this pass because last time we did one, you actually hit the like button and engaged people. So that's a form of social media credit, and I just want to say thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I, I really don't know what's going on in here. I was listening to Dave talk. It was uh, pretty, pretty good, solid stuff. Pretty informative yeah. stuff. Well, you know, I, I want to since you, I'm gonna start. This somebody asked a question right, on. Um, somebody asked a question on who is this? This is uh, I think this is my red David, but. Mike, you just pop in here. I'm just going to throw this one at you. How does pedo baptism play into the family covenant? You guys run her up after this, and then we'll move on. Are you asking me? Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, we it's it's the sign of of the new covenant. It's uh, we're federal heads. Of, no dog. My dog eating a watermelon off the table. So sorry. Um. But. Uh, so yeah, uh, pedo baptism. I did not come in ready for this when my dog was eating water falling off. You don't come in here. I'm prepared. I'm I don't know what this is. It's, it's a space. It's Twitter. All right, here's what I'll say. Uh, yeah, pedo baptism it, it marks them because God, they're in the covenant. God's given them this beautiful trust. He's promised it. have handed it from one family to the next. It's theirs. We mark them with uh, baptism and by faith they can take 
hold of all the treasures that God's given to them that's been handed down to their family by faith. But they make they make use of it eventually down the line. That's like the Westminster Larger Catechism has a great section on making your your improving your baptism. That's a great way. But it, it's it's part of a as we serve God as individuals in a in a family, a baptism marks them as belonging to the covenant community, and also uh, it represents the regeneration that will happen at some point by faith. Okay, last question. I'll let you go because you got a dog that's being bad over there eating watermelon off the table. Uh, question is, who would you want to be your Christian prince? I'm joking. I'm joking. Don't answer that. That's a very, very. And if you, if you, if you, if you, still you know, know what it, that sounds like? So have you, I thought about this. That Christian prince thing is a way that reformed people can have the rapture. Like, it's the way post all people. Okay, say that. It's like this guy that's going to come. It's like this Napoleon-like character going to come and save us from all the troubles that we're in and we're just waiting for our christian prince to come and, and rule america and usher in like the perfect time it, it really is like a, a, kind of like a, a funny way for the rapture mindset to sneak no. into the church so it's like think about the post mill guys that we've known guys like some are solid thinkers gary north is a solid thinker but a lot of these guys are waiting for america to crash so they could like you know, emerge from their bunkers and jeans and bullets and rebuild the perfect, you know, millennial kingdom. It, it was like a weird way of ar- at arriving at this same rapture mindset, which dis- disengages you from taking action right now. I totally agree. I totally agree with that when it comes, like, I see that. I really do see it's a abdication of taking responsibility for the moment that you're in, right? So somebody can come and just fix it all over and I'm getting out of here. I don't have to worry about it. Although, I guess that's somewhat, that feels a little bit of a straw, man. I, I can hear them in my ear right now. I say, that's not what we're saying. I, I get it. But the idea is still feels like that. I have to say, I feel differently about a lot of the guys from the Reconstruction Movement. What their position was, and I think I can hear the Christian nationalists, they're saying, you guys love Christian nationalists. We're saying is that it's going to fall. I think the I think the reconstruction guys were saying you can't live like this and then not have judgment that destroys and topples idols. You're gonna get it. And when when people are living faithfully and honor God in their work, it will be the society that the one that collapses will fall on top of and then will rebuild from that. So it was this, yeah, they're waiting for it, but not because they're trying to get out of the work. I think that's I feel a little bit different about how the Christian nationals guys feel about a Christian prince over against that. What I would say on that, I don't disagree. I think those are good points. What I think the, the part of the, the troublesome part of an American mindset is how quickly things, things happen. So like when you look at um, theological reform through the different ecumenical councils, these things did not happen like, like in one year. These things took a while to play out. And so if you take like libertarians who just have been convinced that fiat currency was going to fail and there's going to be a massive like quota collapse of society, I've been hearing that stuff since the 90s and that hasn't happened. I think it's because they underestimate one is our Christian heritage and how great it was and how we've been running off the, uh, the fumes of it for quite some time. Two, I, how slow things can move both in terms of fall and, and uh, reformation. So sometimes, you know, it takes a year um, to get a decade's worth of, uh, of work done. Sometimes a decade, you know, happens 
or in a year, you know, or I can't remember how the saying goes. My, my point is, is that I do think everyone keeps waiting for this fall. It could be 10, 20, 30, 40 years away. Like balkanization of America, I think is a real possibility, but it takes a mass of relocation and relocation takes some sort of issue that pushes all the same people to the same region of America. So like having state laws about abortion could be one or some sort of problems with water, transgender laws, or whatever those things could do it. But when I look at a lot of people and I hear them talk about these things, there's a sort of suddenness to it. Like it's just going to pop onto the scene. And that's kind of what it reminds me of. Uh, it's like, we're going to occupy this little corner. We're not going to take ground. We're just going to be an awareness committee. Like, are you ready for Jesus? You better get ready. You better get ready. Jesus is coming. You better get ready. Um, there's this sort of awareness uh, campaign that they're involved in, and they're not actually taking ground. So they assume that when this happens, it'll happen quickly. I think uh, my my assumption is these things just are annoyingly slow. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't certainly. I'm just telling you the feel I get off. I certainly don't want to put words into. Yeah, I don't know what they mean. Honestly, sometimes I, well, it's, yeah. it's, it's good hashtag stuff. Now here's the deal: if you feel it, it must be right. <laughs> That is what I know. Yes. That's why I'm barely Presbyterian. I still feel. You know what? It's all right, brother. I'm not a robot. Hey, I appreciate you, Pastor Foster. Thank you for joining in, brother. Hello. All right, Pastor Reese, you have a question, and then we can move on to another question that I have. The question was, oh, where's the question? Do you remember the question? I got to pull it back up again. Oh, yeah. How does how baptism uh, play family covenant? Now, Pastor Reese, I thought you actually answered that because – I don't think you said it like this, but what I have my kids do in their catechism, I remind them when God made covenant with Adam, he made covenant with Adam and his posterity. That's what I would remind my kids. You, you don't have an option. Your daddy decided that for you, and my daddy decided that for me. And it goes. That's part of the answer for me, but I know you're going to figure out a lot more. Absolutely. So covenants definitely have a succession to them. They are binding across generations. And one of the examples of that is when Joshua is tricked into making a covenant with the Gibeonites, and then later on Saul goes to try to kill them 400 years later, um, there's a curse that comes on Israel, and David has to deal with that curse because of Saul's betrayal of that covenant from 400 years earlier. And so the idea that covenants only last for a person over the lifetime is unbiblical and false, and we see that across the covenant structure that God makes. And in addition to that, um, I'm sorry, I was I was making the sound for the Baptist. The Baptist would say that Adam's covenant goes across generations. They would say that the that families have some sort of connection across generations, and they would say that the state has to deal with coming across generations. The church doesn't, and that's you know that's a special pleading, and you need to demonstrate that. But but if there's if we see this connectivity, the thing is we have this principle of external holiness that occurs with people that enter into a household that's got a Christian officer. In the household, the, the husband and the wife are both officers, the master and mistress of the home, um, and and. Either one of them becoming Christian is one of the officers of the home becoming Christian, and thereby the, the home itself becomes holy. And the home is not a physical location, just like the church is in a building. 
home is a household. It's the covenant destruction. It's those who are a part of that uh, oikos or fate. Uh, and so that this idea of the household. And the household, we see that in, in 1 Corinthians 7, the idea that the, the husband and wife are both holy if one of them is holy. And the children are also holy. And we see this applies to uh, household servants even, going in back to the example with Abraham back in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. And so this principle that the household is defined by God and that there is an obligation to give the sign of holiness, the sign of the covenant, because there's this joining of the household into the church or into that, uh, yeah, into the church. The household and the individual both are able to join the church in that way. Okay, so I want to, you brought this up, then you kind of turned back to, to answer the question. But I want to, I have some stuff to put down. I want to walk through the, the home, the household real quick. You did a really good job talking about um, the, uh, oh, the offices, prophet, priest, king. And then you just earlier, just a moment ago, that husband and wives have a responsibility to operate covenants in their house. And, but I want to know, can we walk through the prophet, priest, king responsibilities of the home for both men and women? So you have women be prophet, priest, king in the home? How does that work? How do those things work out and play out together? Because I think it's going to be really important moving forward as we operate there. Even before we get there, I mean, what the progress go? Would it go the family, the church, and then the civil magistrate, or would it go family to the magistrate church? What's the actual order, you think? Yeah, so the Westminster Confession lists the magistrate first, and that's uh, that, that's not the order that you see the development in Scripture. Um, and I don't think it's that order from more basic to less basic. But there's a reason why they go there first. But well, I think for us, we need to think about the individual and the household. Those are what are created in the pre-fall state. Then we have the church being completely given in terms of the giving of the public religious worship. And then we also have the state being formed. So the, the, the order of individual household, church, and state is the order that Reformation is going to Go in, and is the order that we need to look at. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. So let's, let's work. So we're sitting here working through um, the, the household. Let's work with the husband's prophet, priest, king. Let's work out how he operates like that in his house. And then, women, do they function as prophet, priest, king? And how do they? How does this same order work through for them? Because there's a high, we got to get the hierarchy here too, right? Absolutely. So. Um, when a husband and a wife get married, they form a household. We talked about the act of secession and also the act of formation that occurs. There's a, there's a, a marriage involves seceding from one household, and it involves a charter and declaration of independence to form a new household. And so when that occurs, the husband and wife together are the founding officers of the home, and the husband is a prophet, priest, king, and the wife is his helper to do the work of dominion, and she is a prophetess, priestess, and queen. And they rule together. And they rule over the property of the estate, and they rule over any servants, and they rule over any children together. Oh, man, we gotta make, t- David, we got to make those shirts. We have to make those T-shirts. 
prophet, priest, king for men, prophetess, priestess, queen for women. We have to make those shirts. Man, those are great shirts. Sounds good. Give me good. His or hers. So, So we have... You have that, the husband and the wife together have a relationship. And we think about the household with the individual, the tools that are given for self-government. We have the word of God given to inform the individual in knowledge, to direct his actions in holiness, in choices in righteousness. But the, the, the tool for discipline, for negative discipline, for pain, is the conscience. And the fact that when you choose wrongly, it makes things feel meaningless and it results in a boredom with a lack of purpose and it causes you to have an awareness of sin and guilt. So meaninglessness, boredom, and guilt. And that cycle of meaninglessness, boredom, and guilt is the pain uh, of conscience. And so the Word of God is a positive tool for individual and the conscience is the negative tool in terms of causing you to repent mm-hmm. and in the household there is the word of God for the positive teaching and there's the rod and there's something that's extremely important to point out here in the formation of the household the individual is not given the right to use the rod on himself you do not have the right with yourself for self-discipline and the husband and wife are one flesh. And so the union, the union that exists makes it so that there is no authority in the basis of marriage to use the rod of the wife. There's, there's, this is something the Puritans addressed. They would talk about it. They'd say, you know, some people in English common law and in Britain, um, and the abuses of that, where you had the, the rule of thumb, and there was a usage of a rod. And, it was in the thumb, it could be used. It's an abuse of a wife. That's wrong. There is no authority in the word of God, any sort of corporal punishment against the wife. The husband rules the wife, and the way that he rules her is with a manly grace and with an assertiveness and clarity. And he is to argue with her, he is to wash her in the word, he is to talk to her and come to agreement. And so this is the, the husband, as a prophet, teaches his wife, and that is an act of service as a priest, officially to spend the time to get her to be on board, and he has to listen to her and see if she is right, and if she is wrong, he needs to repent. So that discussion that occurs in the relationship, so he as a priest is washing her in the word, and as a king, he is leading her and applying the word and work together to build the estate and to guard it, to maintain it, and to have children, raise them, to provide for them. And he provides for her a domain to rule. But he is he's a provider and protector, and he's helping to provide a place for her to rule so that she can rule under his authority and help him to do more. And so the husband and the wife come in there. The husband and the wife together have the authority of the rod over the house. And in having the authority of the rod, we don't have sort of an entered servitude as a part of our the law order here, but historically in the Bible, there was this principle that if you had a debt and you ultimately couldn't pay, or if you stole or whatever, you could do that. And other people could come in as indentured servants voluntarily if they wanted to serve in your house. And a servant could become an indentured servant with permanent, which was called slave. It's not a uh, cattle slave, as we think about in the Roman Empire that was adopted into American law order. 
So there is a law that says they repair. And there was also the children. And we're told in Galatians that a child, until a time appointed by the father, is no different from a slave. And this idea that it is the duty of the husband and wife together to put everybody in their household to productive use. Now, what you do is you care for these children, you raise them up, you raise them to the three of the Lord, you bless them, you prepare, the work is for their estate for them to go, you send them off, you give them money to go help them to start a household, you bless them along the way. And the scriptures say that it is righteous to lay up, the, the parents should lay up for the children and not the children of the parents. Mm-hmm. And so the parents should be seeking to take the work of the children there as much. So this idea that the household together is a dominion-taking unit, and that the children are building up the estate, blessing the parents and serving them, because they are ultimately going to receive that estate, and the parents seek to bless the children by sending them off with, you know, with uh, first fruits of the estate. As they're going and starting their own households. This is the biblical way. And so, that the scriptures teach this principle of the idea of a bride price, a man when he wants to take a wife, oh, he yes. taught you should be depositing money into the home of the father of that. And then there's a dowry. There's money that's going from the father to the new home. And the point of both of those deposits is they are both a part of the inheritance of the woman who is the wife. But it's also that in two households, there is property there that is guarding the woman. So that if the man who is the father ends up you know, being a disaster and fails to leave an inheritance to his children and children's children, then she has some of the inheritance in her new home. If the husband's a disaster, the bride price is there to protect her as money that helps her to deal with a potential harm. And also the dowry is reclaimable in court if she's the innocent party. And so these, these ideas of these this sets of property in two separate homes there are two separate nest eggs. There are two separate collections of capital in two different households to protect her, and they're ultimately going to be given to her if everything's going well. You know, so, I just just real quick, I just want to throw up in here this, this is a new idea for a lot of people. Christians have completely lost this concept and idea as it comes to marriage and the bride price. Everybody wants to mock Christians and the fact that it's even in our Bible. But this is, I just want to bring this point. I'll let you finish. This is an inescapable reality. Once again, everything we're talking about here, when we're talking covenants. Covenants are inescapable realities. You're going to have them, or you're going to have them really, really badly, right? And so this bride price, we already have, our welfare system is a A very expensive one. And it's a horrible one because all couples break the hearts of their worshipers. And when you have bad gods, they punish you Every area of civil government, personal government, government, everything is horrible. Society is horrible. And so if we don't do things God's way. We can expect that we're going to have a problem in our society. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be painful. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up for people to think, oh, this is old fashioned. This is weird. It's like, this is weird. We already do this. It's the same thing. Oh, don't even get me started here. David, I'm sorry. Give me a minute. This is my problem with people who have a an issue with the first table of the law. Guys, what nation thinks it's okay for a treasonous person to run around creating treason in their nation? No one, no one, no one in their mind 
going to sit up there and say treason should be okay. No one in their right mind is going to believe that. And so I find it really interesting that we're really comfortable carrying water for false gods because we're so concerned about speech. These people, it will be the first one. These people need the right to make sure that their Muslim prayers heard all over the nation. You insane? Are you calling for the judgment of God on us? That's treasonous. Do you think that when the Muslims take over, that they're going to make sure that you have freedom of speech? No, stop with this false neutrality. I'm sorry, dude. I better shut up before I start talking about other stuff. All right, you were saying. <laughs> uh, so I, I think this idea is, it sounds odd, this idea of the bride price and of a dowry, that they are pointers to what you were talking about, that there, there has to be a system to care for those who are more vulnerable. And we have to recognize women are more vulnerable entering into a marriage because they're coming in under the authority of the man. And, it's a, and there's the danger of them being abused, the danger of, of them being mistreated, also accused of, of things. Also, you're having a child to have to care for. There's also the danger of the husband time. And so the system that's designed for their protection by God is far better than the system that is designed by LPJ. Praise God. When you're listening to Pastor David Reed, CEO of Armor Republic, uh, Pastor of Freedom Reformed Church, he's out there in Phoenix, Arizona. My brother, my friend, David Reed, go follow him on X. I want him to tweet more, and he doesn't. But he's starting to tweet a little more. Message a little more. So go follow him right now. Wonderful, wonderful guy, solid guy. David, how much time do I have left with you? I think we have about 15 minutes, if that works for you. Okay, okay. I'll give you, I, I'll take as much time as you'll give me because I like talking to you. Um, so I want to talk about now, so let's just say that we have this function going. Do we get through prophet, priest, and king, how a man does it in his house? Ask so, each one of those. We talked a little bit about it as it applies to the wife. And we yes. started to talk about this idea of the master queen. and mistress. I mean, as it applies yeah. to the queen. Yes, okay. That's right. <laughs> So they, they rule together as prophet, priest, king, and prophetess, priestess, queen. And in doing that together, you know, he is to set direction, and he is to set the prioritization, and she is to be his helper in dominion. So they rule together. Now, if they're ruling together, they're master and mistress of the home. And uh, William Perkins, really great book. He's the granddad of the Puritans. And he wrote a really great book called Christian Economy. And sometimes it gets spelled with an O at the front. And, and this idea, he talks about the triple office of the, the husband and the wife. Um, he does not apply the prophet priest king paradigm to them. But I think it's very important if you look at both of those. Prophet priest king paradigm should be applied to self rule, household government, church rule, and the state. And we think about those things in terms of the duties of the individual in the role. And, and we need to think about that. But we also need to realize that there are individual there are individual offices that are distinctive for the covenant institution. So the household has the husband and the wife together, they, um, the king and queen at the home, and they are master and mistress together. And so they rule over the property, and that includes over hiring servants or if there were those who had stolen from them or were indebted to them and hadn't become indentured servants. That would be the law order that God had established. By the way, the Constitution uh, retained the for the punishment uh, of crime 
know, prisons are, they're an incompetent form of it. It's far better to have people who steal have to actually work for the people they harm Come on, rather than having to go make license plates in, you know, Hoboken, New Jersey, or whatever. But anyway. So, Come on, man. you preaching that. you talking about the 13th Amendment right there. Come on now. You got to say that. So, yeah, we, this is, yeah, I just got to point it out. Inexplicable reality. Inexplicable reality, right? You're going to have it. It's just what, what are the limitations of it? How does it work and function? Under, the way it happens right now is that the, the, the victim gets punished worse. Yeah. Right? This is whole. Just and this is what's sad to me about all of this right now, David, is that the social justice movement is the only one who's talking about prison reform. Now it bothers me because I'm like Christians haven't even examined the system. Oh man, this, this I'm taking too much time away from David. I'm sorry, David. I gotta just say this real quick. Civil rights movement, when it happened, we didn't pay attention to how we did things. And the 13th Amendment comes in here and gives the government more power to do more wickedness so that the people who get harmed, robbed, stolen from, or killed, their families, them, or whoever else is the victim has to pay for the person in prison to live, eat, and watch cable television and get a great, great body. So that maybe if they're acquitted, <laughs> they might come out and do it again. You call that justice? Come on, Christians. We got to. We. This is why the conversation on Christian nationalism. I really want to have it. You know, we got some really basic things that we need to work out just in, in, in interaction with the family. So it's the bribe, bribe tax. That don't. We don't need the government in order to be able to start bringing that back. Don't nobody have to get permission to take our government schools. Why do y'all even argue on this on the high level of stuff? And you didn't really do the small thing. I talked to a guy. Up here, he's like, everybody wants to talk about post millennialism, but nobody really wants to change their own neighborhood. Nobody invests in there, anybody invests in their own homes. I thought that he's a critic of it, and I thought that was a very valid point. Ouch, isn't that hurt? Anyway, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. No, it's things, it's things. All right, so that the reality of this role of the husband and wife as master and mistress of the home as father and mother, they are to seek to build out a productive enterprise. In building out a productive enterprise, the household, the book of Proverbs tells us to get your fields in order before you get your house in order. And what we think, and what we think of is we, we think that the household is the place of recreation, entertainment, and you know, where we held host parties. Right? It, this, is, this is kind of what we do. But the household is principally a place of productivity. And the, and the husband and wife, if they don't know how to be productive together, they are sort of failing, misunderstanding their basic work of dominion. Mm -hmm. And so first, the first teammate in building out the estate of your home after you leave your parents' house is your spouse. And so you, you learn together to build that estate. And then children are to be trained up in doing that. And one of the reasons that I love homeschooling is because you get to incorporate your children into the flow of the day, into chores early, and this idea that work is kind of an ordinary condition. So I, I spend my life going from, from one type of work to another. And I love it. It's, it's fulfilling. It's, it's fantastic. 
I avoid the idleness and boredom and temptations that occur from not having the work to do. And so this idea that, you know, I'm basically waking up, going to work out, going to do ordinary work to make money, uh, doing work in the evenings either to care for my children or with my wife. That's work in a good way, not that it's any drudgery, but it's positive work. And I think I'm not here to consume them. I'm here to build them up. And then I have pastoral work. And so there's evenings where I have to do things with that, or the Lord's Day, which is a beautiful but tiring day. You have all of this, this stuff where it's just going from, from thing to thing to thing with a good work, and that makes it so that the time is redeemed. And so with self-government, you need to redeem the time, and then the head of house and the wife together, they need to redeem the time together and to become more efficient, more effective. If they can't accomplish more together than they could have separately working by themselves, they haven't figured out efficient teamwork. The division of labor should make it so that more can be done by them working together than if each other working separately. And so the distinctive roles, one of the things that's established is the obvious reality is the husband is the head of the house. And he has the authority to command the wife to do work. He has the authority to command the wife to do particular tasks. And nobody wants to deal with this. Nobody wants to talk about this in the pulpit. And the reason that we don't understand the authority relationship of the husband and wife is largely because we have no idea what they're supposed to be doing together. And what they're supposed to be doing is exercising dominion, increasing the property that they control, that they are then applying the word of God to, increasing the number of children that they have, and it's causing the word of God to be stored up in the hearts of those children, helping them to operate according to the word of God. And as the house is put into good order, and that excellent order, that excellent behavior, that cosmion is on display, as that excellent order is displayed and resources become available, the man is going to be a person who's able to afford increasing amounts of hospitality. And hospitality, the wife is going to work together as a queen to host people. The children are a part of it. If you have not read about King Solomon's hospitality service that he gave to the Queen of Sheba, that was a very powerful He was a witness in drawing in, and she had all these questions and objections to Yahweh, and she comes in and she leaves the Christian. And so when she learns in the hospitality, that is, that is the place of ministry in the home. Women don't get to preach from the pulpit because God forbids it they do get to teach the truth in the home. The home is a place where you can invite many people. You can have Priscilla and Aquila sitting down together with Apollos and they together talking to him and seeing his theology reform. The work of the home and allowing hospitality to occur and being a place where the husband and wife together can do discipling work is also a place where then there's the opportunity for women to disciple other women and for the man to disciple other men and to bring them into a relationship, but they can also work together in, in interacting with people. And so that ability to teach together, to disciple together, to be able to counsel together, that occurs with hospitality. And if your home has enough resources where you can begin to invite people in and give them free meals and seek to put your resources to serving them, your ministry power dramatically increases. And as you're exercising that hospitality and people's lives and giving them things generously to help them. Because I'll tell you what, when you do hospitality, at the cost of feeding them, then you also start to find out problems in their lives. And you start having to figure out time costs and money costs to bless those people to help them. 
and not just lay burdens on them. Oh and my so goodness, Dave, that's it, multiplies, it multiplies the cost, but it also multiplies the blessing. Because when you give to the poor, when you give to your brothers, you're giving to Christ, you're giving to God, and God lends back, gives back that money with great interest. He pays better interest than anybody else. And so the rate of return of lending to God and giving to God is the best possible investment. It will bless you. You will find joy in this life. You will find that he tends to prosper you in this life, and he will give you rewards in that. And it is worth pouring yourself out in that way. And in the ministry of hospitality, where the husband and the wife get to, as prophet and prophetess, speak into people's lives, and priest and priestess, to be able to sacrificially serve other people, and as king and queen, be able to host and be hospitable, and their children sit. And when the guests leave, you don't just start complaining about them to the children, because that teaches the children that hospitality is, a, is an act. It's a plaything. It's hypocrisy. Wow. What you do is you talk to the children about how to bless those people. You, you with the children. You pray for those people. You remember them. You encourage the children to look for ways to do good works to those people and to continue to build relationships. And so hospitality is where your children see your ministry to other people is not hypocrisy. And, you know, that tricks my own conscience. So I can remember times doing that. Right? But, I, but I also know times when I did what I was supposed to do. And so, you know, it's, it's this growth that we're all going to go through, but that's the reality of what this is for. And hospitality, when you let people into your homes, that's one of the qualifications that elders have to have. And one of the reasons it's necessary is because people are going to see your house in a different way. They're going to see how your children behave. They're going to see how you and your wife function. They're going to see the order of your home. And if you have people over for dinner, guess what? They're going to see whether or not you invite them to join you for family worship. That's right. And if you invite them to family worship, they're going to see what your teaching like. That's right. And so that, that, I'm a guy. I gotta say this. Most folks, most folks ain't doing family worship. And so that's already a problem. Like, I think it's, that's one of the areas that we need to repent of right away because it's hard to do any of the, hold any of these offices without the word of God, right? To execute as you need positive and negative without the word of God being preached in your home. Because the first part of the covenant is who is a transcendent one over us, right? Like that's essential. So oh, Absolutely. anyway, I, I, I will give you, make sure that you get it all because you got to go in like three minutes. So let us join. I'm because I want to give you closing words. So I want to give you, and I want you to, if you can tie it. Cause you, I, just so everybody knows the pastor just did was tie all of this together in the, in the Right, that actually engages the environment that it's in. So the business is going out from the family structure in this order because of the blessing of the uh, husband and wife working together. We break it up, sowing into people to cultivate them. Now they are bringing something of value to bless other people with their hospitality. So now we have an economy functioning back and forth between other people. World, we haven't even, and we're already taking care of our own with the bride price. So, we haven't even involved the civil magistrate. David, I want you to take all that and start tying it into how it bleeds into the civil side. Okay, before we jump into that bleeding over, though, the individual self government has a form of worship that God has instituted. The Lord Jesus Christ plainly teaches us that we are called to pray 
secretly in prayer closets. This is the institution of what's called secret worship or private worship. Private worship is to be made up of the individual partaking in the Word of God by reading it, studying it, meditating upon it. And the individual can occasionally bow to God things that are commanded in His Word and do that as a way of seeking the blessing of God or in asking God to remove some imminent danger. Now, the other thing that the person can do in private worship is to pray. And we should pray daily. We must this day our daily bread, right? We should pray daily. That's what we're told. We, we take the word of God daily because it, man is not lived by bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we eat daily as an ordinary practice. And we eat the bread of life on an ordinary practice. And there's prayer. So we pray secretly on a daily basis. We should sing praise. Right? We pray for God to give us our daily bread of the word. We receive the daily bread of the word. And then we give praise out of thankfulness. And so the singing of psalms in private worship. And by the way, if you want a free psalter, you can look up. You can sing all the psalms to meet her. Our website, uh, com. You can access the church and psalter there. It's put to common hymn tunes, and you can sing them easily. And, and families... Is the idea of family worship. Family worship involves the use of the Word of God, and that's the reading of it, the studying of it, the uh, teaching of it to the to the family together. And it is what's called holy conference, discussing together. And we're told women aren't supposed to ask ask questions at church, but they are supposed to ask their husbands at home. And if you're not giving your wives an opportunity to ask you questions in private worship, then I would encourage you to do that and it will help them to honor you in the public sphere as the authority and it will make it so that they are filled up with wisdom and the treasures of wisdom and if you don't know the answer you're going to be forced to go look it up which will make you filled with wisdom. Then uh, you have the word you have also also prayer and the, the, the Lord's Prayer is uh, our Father which art in heaven it's, we pray with other people and we pray for other people and so we are supposed to pray with our families daily they said yeah Give us this day our daily bread. Who you're praying with there? Who are the people you give daily bread to? Who are the people you pray with daily? This idea of daily family worship is a part of that. So the word, you're feeding them. You wouldn't be able to feed your children and your wife. If you didn't, you wouldn't be providing. If you're not giving them the bread of life, you're trying to give them something more important. You're allowed to fast from ordinary food sometimes. You're not allowed to fast from the word of God. And so you are supposed to feed them the word daily. You pray with them daily, and you should lead them in the singing of psalms. And so this idea of singing together, we're commanded in Ephesians and in Colossians to teach each other, to exhort each other with the Word of God, singing psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. So the psalms are given to us for that. I believe that the hymns and the songs are of the Spirit are in this altar. My brother here does not, so I won't throw that on you. What? But, okay. Maybe you do. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great, great, great. Great. So, anyway, so all that. So then we have uh, from there we have the family worship that should occur that gets that family in order. Those institutions. That's the drumbeat. And what I teach is you know, the, the Bible teaches us about the idea of morning and evening worship. So I teach that in our church they should do one of those in the morning and one of them in the evening. So my family, everybody in my family does private worship by themselves. Our four-year-old does his private worship with my wife, and 
Um, then we do family worship together uh, in the evening. Now, sometimes my wife and I will do our private worship together again because that idea of the, the legal unity of us being a one person. Uh, so small children or husbands and wives together do private worship. But this idea of training people to worship God in secret and the idea of household worship. So that is a part of how as a priest you lead your home and about how you as a prophet teach your home. You're providing a direct life there. So we talked about the physical things. There's a really fantastic Jewish saying that I want to this is an old Jewish saying. It was like, if you don't teach your son a trade, you are teaching him to be a thief. And so it is very important you teach everybody in your household to do profitable and useful work. So my son, when they get into their mid-teens, they stop doing homeschooling at home and working mainly with my wife. And they come and they work for me full time. I start to pay them. And that money they're saving up is money that they can save up to go start their own household. And so that idea of teaching them to do some sort of a skill and having them do work. And as they're doing that work and building up money to take, um, that money is so they can start a house and then they together are set up to be able to leave with their wife over property having capital assets so that they can be master and mistress together and figure out how to build things out. And so the father and the mother are called to raise up the children and train them in self-government and to help to send them off. Now, the household trains up people to rule other households. And so it's the source and supply of future leaders. But the household is the place of government where we see a man is fit to govern. That's right. If a man doesn't govern his household well, is not fit to be a public officer in the church. He's also not fit to be a public officer in the state. And so the state gives us a, a place where the most power is exercised, the sword, which can destroy. And the ability to root out and destroy is, is a very powerful thing. And so the household, we observe people there. Exodus 18.21 lists out qualifications for civil magistrates. And you observe those qualifications in the way a man runs his estate before you see how he would run the state. And and if he's running his estate well, according to those principles, you have evidence that he's fit to potentially rule in the state or in the church. And there's a parable that we're given in the book of Judges, and it's called the, the parable of the bramble bush. And essentially the idea is this. If people go to the vine and they ask the vine to rule fruit because I don't want to stop making this fruit. Why would I give that up and go have sway over trees? And the, the, the trees go and they look for another king and they say, okay, how about the fig tree? And the fig tree doesn't want to rule. He goes, ah, I make sweet stuff. I don't want to give that. It's productive. Why would I give this up to sway over trees? And you go to the olive tree. And the olive tree says, ah, I make olives. It you know, gives us an oil for anointing spray. Why would I give this up to have sway over trees? So they go to the productive tree don't want to rule. They want to do what they're doing. They want to do their own thing. Governing other people is awful. And, and, you know, so why would I do that? He's asking for a headache. I become everybody's servant. He desires a church office, desires a good work. So the same is true for the civil magistrate. He is the servant of God and the servant of the people. Well, one of the great motivators for why a man who puts his house in good order and his joy and a wife to rejoice in, and children that 
walking in the truth and all the joy of that. The reason you might enter into public office is because you don't want to be ruled by the bramble bush who produces no good fruit. And he's very desirous to gain coercive power over the productive output of fruitful trees. Mm. And so the bramble bush wants to make everybody bow under him. He wants to threaten everybody with fire. And he's arrogant and proud because he's constantly being outshined. And so he has to lie and be hypocritical and silly and suggest that he's great. So there is this pompousness that comes. The bramble bush is unproductive. Productivity in the home shows you to be a vine or an olive tree or a fig tree. And as you're producing fruit, it gives evidence to other people that you could rule well. And we have an obligation to rule our households well, to build up households with resources, serve other people with those resources, and then use those positions in serving other people as opportunities to be seen as serving so we can then enter into more service. And the more service, it requires the drawing on the resources of our household. And that's why what we see in the institution of marriage, we're told that a man becomes 20, when a man in Israel is 20, he's a man in Israel. When, you become, when you're a male and you're at the age of 20 and you're covenanted, you're a man in Israel. You vote, you go to war. A man who gets married is to be free from public service for the first year. But it's so important that he build the relationship properly. And the ordering of the household is so important that it is more important to make sure that your marriage starts off well and that you be called to defend your nation from a just, a just war against an invader. There's the level of importance that God puts on putting the household in good order. And so this idea that the household is the key of civilization, it is the thing where we get our leaders and leaders who don't have their houses in order don't have the administrative capability or the resource set to be able to rule well. And the way a husband leads a wife, the way a father leads his children, the example of how he's going to lead everywhere. And so the wife and the children are a foreshadowing of what he will turn anything he needs into. And so we have to see that good work, that washing away of blemishes and spots, and that raising up of children in a positive and constructive way as evidence. People don't want to apply this to the state, they don't want to apply it to 